0: Uh, We're going to turn now to God's Word, and we've been in a series um, on David, and David and uh, different characters that he encounters, uh, mainly from 1 Samuel, we'll move into 2 Samuel a little bit in the weeks to come. Uh, And today, we are introduced to a new character who was kind of present, if you were here last week, he was kind of present through everything that was said then, if not, it'll be online soon to catch up with. Um, but throughout everything that went on in our last installment, David and Saul, where Saul, this kind of crazy king, gets riven with jealousy and insecurity because of the anointing that rests on David that enables him to face Goliath the giant, even though he's a small boy with, uh, with no armor and with just five stones in his pocket. Saul gets so jealous and insecure and seeks to kill David. And all the way through that, uh, David remains in a right place before God, in in righteousness, we would say, in right standing, in purity, in a, a soft heart that's still listening to God. And he remains honoring towards Saul, even though this person is trying to kill him. He keeps honoring and respecting him and trying to see him turn around, not responding in kind. And through all of that and the saga and the different uh, events that happened, there was this other presence. Another quieter character, you might say, a faithful friend. And it was someone who was crucial to everything that really went on. And today, we're going to focus on David and Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was um, Saul's eldest son. That makes things a bit complicated, doesn't it? Your friends with David, but um, your dad is trying to kill him. And you get caught in the middle uh, many, many times. Jonathan was the eldest son of King Saul. But This didn't kind of blind him, if you like, to Saul's craziness and his deranged plans. He was uh, impacted by them on many occasions. He was on the receiving end of uh, a death threat from his father for eating something when he shouldn't have eaten something and he didn't even know. So Jonathan knew full well how crazy Saul was. And in the middle of that, he was a brilliant friend to David, as we'll see. And through it all, he knew what his role was, and crucially, he knew what his role wasn't. Now, in microcosm, in those last three sentences, I've probably told you everything I'm going to say today, but there is more to come, um, which I hope you are happy about, and I will elaborate on. There's three main themes that I want to unpack today. One's a major one, and two are more kind of supporting themes, if you like. All important, but just in terms of what I think God wants to uh, impress on us today, one major theme and two supporting ones. And we'll start with one of those supporting themes, because Jonathan is committed to the truth There's a biblical scholar that's talked about Jonathan, and he says that Jonathan is a model of loyalty to truth. Now, in this culture at this time, uh, being loyal to your family was a really big deal. You know, you were a part of your family and your ancestral line more than you were your friendship group or where you were born. Your family line was everything, and being uh, respectful and honoring to your ancestors, your forefathers, was a really big deal. Now, we know, don't we, from the Ten Commandments that honoring your father and mother is also included there. It's important for us to honor those who brought us into the world, to treat them with respect and value. These blueprints for life, the Ten Commandments, include that there. And Jonathan knew all of that, and he followed it, but he wasn't impinged by it. He was more committed to God and the truth that comes from God than he was to being honoring to his father when those two things came into conflict. Jonathan shows that he wasn't blindly obedient to his dad, even when his dad was making these crazy threats or uh, unrealistic plans. He was committed and was honoring, but when that came into conflict with following God, he knew who to follow, and that was always God. Let's dive into one passage, 1 Samuel 19, and the first seven verses which show us this really well. 1 Samuel 19, beginning at verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done that benefited you greatly? He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad." Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. Jonathan here and elsewhere trod this middle way, if you like, between blind obedience to what your dad said, regardless of the cost, and complete defiance of your father, whatever they said. He didn't let himself be pulled to either extreme, but he followed this middle path, which enabled him to follow God and God's way and where he could to then follow his father also. Where he was on the right path, his father, Jonathan's support was there. Where what he was trying to do was wrong, he withdrew his support. But he used the position that the that this afforded him. He wasn't completely outlawed from his family, but he used that position to challenge his father and to seek justice and truth at every turn, defending David, as he was able to do here. Jonathan wasn't afraid to stand against his father when that's what was required. Because sometimes to stand for God is to come into conflict with other people who aren't standing for God. You will very likely at times have to do the same. To stand for God in your workplace will sometimes mean standing against your boss who's trying to encourage you to cover something up or to cut a corner or to not show integrity or respect. To stand for God might mean standing against a friend who's trying to influence you in a way that isn't helpful. Trying to force you to behave in a way that you're not comfortable with before God. To stand for God might mean standing against a family member who's trying to pull you back from all this God stuff and not wanting you to to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Jonathan shows how to defy anything and anyone that would compromise our commitment to Jesus while still honoring that person in the ways that you are able to, and so not compounding the problem by responding to them in kind. Jonathan's able then to keep his father's ear and to use the position that that gives him for good to save David as he did in the chapter we've just read. And I pray for you that in any situation of conflict that you're in at the moment, where following God is rubbing up against a friendship or relationship with someone else, I pray that you would hold fast to the truth that comes from God, that you would communicate that to them and to others with boldness and wisdom. And I even dare to pray that through that, the light of God might be seen in this dark place, that your example might turn something round, your words might bring some conviction, so that the light can be seen in the midst of the darkness where it's needed the most. Jonathan then first is committed to the truth. The main point that we see through the life of Jonathan is that he was committed to friendship. 1 Samuel 18 verse 1 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, And did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan and David had a strong, committed friendship. You may know that there are four biblical words used for love throughout Scripture eros is passionate love, romantic, eros, erotic uh, linguistically. That's the first. The second, philia, friends and equals, peers, that kind of a love. The third, storge, familial love that parents have for children and brothers have for sisters. And then finally, agape, which is God's perfect, unconditional love. Now here, what is talked about between Jonathan and David is philia kind of love. The love between friends equals companions, A togetherness that is powerful. Some have questioned whether this was eros, love. But there's little in the scriptures to support that. They were one in spirit, not in flesh. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, it says, After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times, with his face to the ground, They kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. They kissed each other here as friends would have done in this time and still do sometimes today, a greeting, a parting kind of a kiss, bound together with this filial love as brothers, as friends. And it's sad to me that some have read this kind of a description of a relationship and thought that it must be romantic, because that speaks of a dearth and a decline of friendship. Friendship. It says that we don't think friendship can be very much if to love each other like this must have then been something romantic. It's said today that one third of men in the UK have no close friends, and 40% of women aged 16 to 24 say they are often or always lonely. Friendship is in the pits. The number and the quality of friendships, you might say, is lower than it's been for decades and centuries. There's a Christian author and speaker who I know called Phil Knox, and he wrote a book recently called The Best of Friends about this theme. He says as he was going about researching as you would do for a book, you read everything else that's available in that area, and he said, it didn't take me very long. Because whilst lots of people talk about friendship, no one's really done much work into it. And yet we're seeing the decline of that. In one interview, he said, friendship is timely. It is the need of the hour. Loneliness levels are increasing. We have more connections, but struggle for depth. Our world is divided and fractured. We need the best of friends. He tells the story of a small town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto, where there was a mystery that no one could quite solve in the 1950s. Mortality rates in Roseto were a third lower than in the rest of the United States. Heart disease was almost non-existent in otherwise high-risk groups, and no one could work out why. So all these researchers and analysts start going in to test the water and to see what their diet is, but they find the water's the same and the diet's the same lifestyles and other things were examined. It wasn't the air quality or anything like that which meant that the mortality rate was so much lower. They found that it was the relationships. Three or four generations commonly lived under one roof. Neighbors had deep bonds of trust with each other. People in this town exemplified and showed friendship to each other. And it blessed them in all manner of ways, including bringing their mortality rate down by a third, compared to the rest of the country where they had all the same cultural factors, but none of the same friendships. This place, Rosetto, shows us that where we get friendships right, they are transformative. Where we get friendships right, they can be incredibly powerful. People who can journey through life with us, multiplying the joys, and dividing the pains and in scripture and in the way of jesus we get an example of how to do friendship we've got tools if you like that we can use to make friends strong friends to make communities of friendship we've got a gospel that brings down the dividing line between people that means that those who are hostile without jesus become brothers and sisters with him We've got the impetus for a community of both genders and all ages and every nationality, a community that transcends social class, political ideology, and life background. The gospel gives us love that binds us together, bound with the author of love, the one who is love himself. The gospel gives us a model of forgiveness and reconciliation. How to get over the obstacles, the hurdles that will come as we try and live at peace with one another. And the gospel gives us the encouragement, doesn't it? To live with others. For there's no other way to follow Jesus than to have other people around you to do it with. Iron can't sharpen itself, but iron can sharpen another piece of iron and in turn be brought to sharpness itself. So, could we be the kind of church that models great friendship like Jonathan, like David? Could we be a church that seeks out other people who aren't like us and becomes friends with them as a display of the gospel which brings all sorts of different people into one family? Could we be the kind of church that perseveres through the awkward bit at the beginning and the difficult bits as it carries on? Who shows our commitment to God and our discipleship to Him by the love that we have for one another? Could we be the kind of church that sees it in every friendship of Berry as it is in heaven? Now you all know the kind of things that might help work towards this inviting someone for a drink, spending some time with people beyond the norm. Can I dare you to be the one who asks the question that takes the relationship to a deeper level when you get there, not the one that keeps things on the surface. Don't just be in the same space together but not really be sharing anything of consequence. Be the one that asks the begging question. Be the one that takes it a layer deeper. And if needed, be the one that's willing to go first in vulnerability. Check in with people regularly. Pray for people when you can. Pray together with people when you can. There's very little that binds people together more fully as friends than praying together. Let's be the kind of church that sees friendship grow and flourish, that sees the lonely brought into family, that sees people go beyond what's normal, respectable, beyond what you'd find in a workplace or a friendship group. Because if God really is love, and if God really does want us to show our commitment to him by our love for one another, what goes on here has to be better deeper, more transformative than what goes on elsewhere, not as a competition, but because we're powered by a different source. We've got different tools at our disposal. And the result of a group of friends coming together, bound together by him, might bring our mortality rate down. It might bring our joy level up. It might bring the networks through which the gospel can spread to be stronger and richer and fuller. Friendship will be the key. Yes, with God the basis of it all, but equally then with one another, as we seek to go through this life together, to stand as family and to respond as one. Jonathan then was committed to friendship. And finally to say, Jonathan was committed to humility. 1 Samuel 23, starting at verse 15, says this, While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Saul is trying to kill David again. You've got the theme. This is what he keeps trying to do. Jonathan comes out to encourage him, to help him find strength in God in the words of the text. And as he does that, as he tries to put courage into his friend, he reminds David who he is. And he shows us that he knew who he was too. He says, you will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. You will be king. David had been anointed as king ages ago, but he was still waiting for it to happen. Maybe he was doubting whether it was ever going to happen. And he needed reminding that what God had started, God was going to finish. What God had anointed him for, he was going to step into at some point. You will be king, David. He reminds him who he is. And then he says, and I will be second. Now this is crucial because it shows David that Jonathan wasn't vying for his position. He wasn't jealous like his dad was. He wasn't trying to take him out so that he could stay number one. He was willing to be second. Because he knew that that is not what God had called him to Jonathan's saying, I don't want to be the leader. I don't want to be the king. I know that's not what God's got for me. My role is to support you, to encourage you, to bless you, to be a friend to you. And I'm happy with that. So much of our energy is wasted in seeking positions that God never designed for us to have. Or in vying for a position that God never wanted to give us. It's in the disappointment about not being someone that God never created us to be. Jonathan knew full well, you're supposed to be the king, I'm supposed to be second, and I'm comfortable with that. It doesn't mean you're more important, more loved, more blessed. It means that we've got different roles in God's big story. How much of our energy is wasted trying to get to places that God never directed us to? To get into positions that God didn't ever have for us? And with the discontentment that comes by not being on the status level that we think we deserve. If you're known and loved by God, you've got the highest status of all. Nothing else could be higher or more important than that. Jonathan wasn't slighted by not being called to be king. He played his part and he knew his role. Psalm 84 verse 10 says that I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'm happy standing in the right place, opening the door. I'm happy to be in your place, God, and serving you in whatever way possible, washing feet. I'd rather do that than have a position of high status and high honor in the wrong place, pursuing the wrong ends. Jonathan shows us this in humility really, really well. So drawing it all together, what's your part then in God's big story in Berry or beyond in 2023? What are you seeking that God didn't call you to? Or if you're really honest, you never thought to ask him about? Who are you jealous of? That maybe you're supposed to encourage and come alongside and bless. Now, yes, some of those questions are tricky and huge and we'll take some unpacking. But point number two, God sends us friends to journey that through with. He speaks his word to us as we seek him, yes. But sometimes wisdom and insight and perspective and reminders come through one another. So maybe you want to bring that to a trusted friend. Maybe you want to see what part yours is to play with those around you who know and love you and who are seeking God as well. So in Jonathan, we see a commitment to truth, a commitment to friendship, and a commitment to humility. And behind that, in God, we see a God who is the definition of truth. Jesus who said, I am the truth. We see a God who calls us friends if we know him, and draws us together as brothers and sisters around him, and a God who emptied himself in humility, and enables us to be who we were created to be, and to not be who we were never created to be. In Jonathan, we see truth, and friendship, and humility, and in God, we see all of that perfected and magnified. And as God is those things, he poured them into Jonathan. And as God is those things, he wants to pour them into us too. That we would be committed to seeking truth and justice. That we would be committed to friendship and our brothers and sisters around us and those who will come to sit in the pews next to you in the months and years ahead because of what you do now. And a God who wants to pour into us a commitment to humility, knowing who we are, being comfortable with who we're not. And living in that sweet spot of knowing I'd rather do a small thing for God than a big thing for anybody else. My position before him is as beloved, as chosen, as worth going to the cross for. And that puts me on the firmest foundation of all. To step into those things, and then once we've stepped into them, to live into those things requires the help of God. Each of those things on their own is not easy to do. But we have a God who wants to pour himself out and pour his help out to us. And that comes principally through the Holy Spirit. And it's to him that our attention turns now. We're going to leave some space for us to open ourselves to the work of God's Spirit. To say, God, where do I need to put some of that into practice? What's the bit from that that I need to invest in this week? What are you specifically saying to me? We need God's help to make those decisions, to follow in the path that he's laid before us.